This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu forward slash store to download this book or purchase a physical copy. Intellectual Schizophrenia Culture, Crisis and Education by Russus J. Rushduni. Copyright 1961, Dorothy Rushduni and the Rushduni Irrevocable Trust. Calcedon, Ross House Books. Chapter 2. The Purpose of Knowledge Modern man has been extensively instructed in the sexual life of savages, their social customs, fertility rights and education practices, with some very real profit, to the publishers involved. Whether Western marital life has been edified by the knowledge that passionate Melanesians bite off one another's eyelashes in the heat of love is possibly open to question. Behind much of the production and consumption of such information stands, however, a highly respectable theory, one which has become an unconscious article of faith. Knowledge is power. For Francis Bacon, as he explained it in as he expounded it in his Aphorisms Concerning the Interpretation of Nature and the Kingdom of Man, in Novum Organum, was man is, quote, the servant and interpreter of nature, unquote, rather than of God. This is in radical departure from the biblical concept of Psalm 8, affirming man to be king over creation under God. Indeed, in Aphorism 3, Bacon asserted, quote, Human knowledge and human power meet in one, for where the cause is not known, the effect cannot be produced. Nature to be commanded must be obeyed, and that which is in contemplation is as the cause is, in operation as the rule. End quote. Among other things, the scientific approach for Bacon was characterized by the requirement for an exhaustive collection of particulars in each scientific inquiry, an insuperable requirement never met, and the requirement that the scientist recognize no fact or conclusion until it first passes muster under the test of his particular methodology, unless the scientist, to use Bacon's expression, act like the spider running a web out of himself, rather than like an ant which merely collects materials. The consequences of this position have been far-reaching. Moral inertia and cowardice are no new things in history, but they function now on two new grounds. Men hesitate to act on the sufficient knowledge that they have, because it is not exhaustive, as though such knowledge were possible. Again, men collect men collect knowledge of evil as though the public proclamation of the facts gave some power over evil. Bacon's aphorism was, in a limited sense, true. Nature, to be controlled, has to be known, but the knowledge in itself does not affect the control. The modern attitude which looks to science for so many social values has made an ugly fact out of investigation. More than one political reputation has been made on the basis of investigations and hearings, as witness Kefauver, with the main consequences being that at least one hapless witness died for telling the truth. Many a businessman, worker or police officer 
under the wretched illusion that some current investigation offered hope of reform, has testified to his or her own ruin. A double fallacy is involved in these hearings. One, the moral fallacy. If only they hear the truth, people will demand a reform. But hardly a single investigation has taken place in recent years which did not already cover familiar ground. The public interest is usually not in the truth or reform, but in the pleasures of scandal. Two, the education fallacy that knowledge is power, that the proclamation of the facts of evil, for example, is tantamount to the control of evil. As a result, investigations have come to play a major role in the modern era. They have been frequently a substitute for action and, worse yet, in the hands of some men, have been used to smear worthy men and causes. The Industrial Revolution is still viewed by most people, including scholars, through smear investigations with their partial truths of aristocrats who resented the rise of the entrepreneurs. From the Christian point of view, failure to act on knowledge is a sin. From the modern point of view, quote, find the facts, end quote, makes sense, but there is often impotence with regard to action on the facts. This impotence is often heightened by the reserved judgment required by the scientific ideal of exhaustive knowledge. To refer, without the details, to the conclusions of a minor investigation which revealed the dishonesty of a particular official, it is revealing to note the reasons for failure to act after a long and somewhat costly investigation. First, quote, you never know all the facts, end quote, although the fact of dishonesty and misappropriation was known. Second, quote, what does guilty mean anyway, end quote. Besides, restitution of known losses was being made and all was smoothed over. The incident, too minor to attract more than a passing local interest, is important nonetheless. Without a true concept of responsibility, it is hard to have a crime, or, for that matter, any virtue. Today, it is a question in many minds, if or when any person is responsible. His heredity, environment, parental background have all conditioned him. Instead of punishment, he needs reconditioning in order that the desired results may follow. Punishment, which assumes guilt and responsibility, is barbaric. Capital punishment, most of all. Suddenly we find that knowledge has abdicated to conditioning as the means of power. The scientific ideal of knowledge has another facet which has been heavily influenced in modern thought. Scientifically, a hypothesis is usable if it is the theory which does justice to the most facts. It is a kind of common denominator for a particular group of facts. In science, such a procedure may have its validity. But is it applicable elsewhere? It has been very generally applied in ethics, religion and, quote, social sciences, end quote, and elsewhere. In ethics, it began by collecting, long ago, parallel passages to the golden rule, all wrenched out of context, and reading a common meaning into very diverse declarations. A contemporary group uses the Sermon on the Mount similarly, declaring 
in large newspaper advertisements. Quote, In an important sense, we feel this sermon represents the strife and distilled wisdom of all the prophets of time. Akhenaten, Moses, Zoroaster, Jeremiah, Confucius, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, and others unrecorded throughout centuries before any of these, all along their essential teachings have surely pointed the way to sane conduct within the universal discipline and challenge of God. End quote. Apart from the radical historical violence of this statement and its confident inclusion of unknown and unrecorded prophets, the significant fact is that God appears with quotes, and properly so. He is, after all, only the common denominator of all men's ideas, and the ultimate source of truth in Revelation is the mass concurrence of men. Only thus can true value appear. Some have derived, quote, true, end quote, or, quote, natural, unquote, religion by this methodology. The end result of such an approach is to be found in Kinsey, who could list and acquit animal contexts and homosexuality with heterosexuality as alike natural and hence normal. In this concept, knowledge becomes equivalent to permissiveness rather than power, and the psychiatric data indicates that permissiveness leads to impotence rather than power. Knowledge, as statistical incidence, never leads to power. It only witnesses to the cultural predilection and preference for a certain form of behaviour. But knowledge as statistical incidence is still a compelling force socially. However, with the waning faith in democracy, Marxism and the masses, the conception of knowledge as statistical incidence has in some quarters given way to a more Freudian concept. The orthodox Christian doctrine of the infallible word of God, the Bible, as the ground of all true knowledge and itself inerrant, has its secular analogue in the Freudian doctrine of the infallibility and inerrancy of the subconscious. Freud assumed the validity of every aspect of this new word. Here was an area of self-revelation where no error was possible. The very concept of the Freudian slip assumes that even the most casual mistake of speech is a part of this new infallible word forcing itself through the sick facade of the consciousness. There was much of Rousseau and Freud, although a much less optimistic trust in nature. No evidence for this infallibility concept has been given, nor can any significant addition to knowledge be ascribed to it. There is, perhaps, some comfort in this fact, because it would be a little trying to live easily with all that awesome infallibility under one's skin. At any rate, man has become less and less sure what constitutes knowledge and, in identifying both knowledge and value with statistical incidents, has destroyed both. As Weaver has pointed out, quote, values begin divisions among men, end quote. Values are fundamentally divisive, but man is hostile too often to divisive values and so the values he prizes are in effect anti-values. Attempts to reduce religion, ethics, or whatever value he seeks to an all-inclusive level. For example, it is said that a loving God cannot permit the existence of hell, 
therefore, everyone must go to heaven. Since heaven must include Jack the Ripper and Hitler, under these circumstances, this loving God must recondition them for their new existence. Violence is thus done to values wholesale and to the integrity of God, heaven and man. This problem is important because man's concept of knowledge is oriented to his concept of values. What the Indian medicine man considered true knowledge is hardly the scientist's definition of it. And the difference is in their basic philosophy and values. The scientist was not born full-grown from the head of Zeus. He is a cultural product, having basic to his science certain assumptions which are the product of Hellenic, Christian, medieval and modern humanist influences. Now, however, the old certainties are open to doubt and the values often more personal than social. Indeed, values are regarded increasingly as an area of personal free choice rather than social necessity. The consequence has been the development of an odd filing cabinet concept of mind and man. All framework of reference being gone, man has, for the most part, one filing classification left, miscellaneous. The group in progressive education is only a larger miscellaneous item than the individual. Man's knowledge today is Alexandrian. Masses of detail without a focus. But man cannot give to his knowledge a focus which he himself does not possess. Consider the focus which man increasingly manifests. Reisman, Glazer and Denny have called attention to the fact that man has become consumption-centred rather than production-centred, has made the group the source of morality and the framework of reference, has made in some instances understanding a substitute for power, has become other-directed rather than inner-directed, and shifted the emphasis from morality to morale, and has enthroned the feelings of the group into a position of deity. All of this is well illustrated in the December 28, 1959, double issue of Life magazine, entitled, quote, The Good Life, end quote. About 200 extravagant pages are given to defining, quote, the good life, end quote, in terms of two things, play and, quote, love, the elixir, end quote. Nothing is said about God in relation to whom the good life was once defined, nor about work and learning. Here, without question, is a child's conception of the good life, love and play, but that child is increasingly modern man everywhere. As it has been observed, man once lived to work, but now he works to live, that is, to play. The same is true of knowledge. Man's goal in knowledge is increasingly release from the responsibility of knowledge. Curriculum changes are often urgently needed. But, in the face of this studied infantilism, not enough. Long before Bacon, man set himself a false ideal for knowledge. Man's original sin involved the postulate of an ultimate epistemological and metaphysical pluralism which gave equal ultimacy to the mind of man and of God as well as to time and eternity. Hence, there was no eternal decree, and only time could be the test of anything, together with experimentation and exhaustive knowledge. In terms of this, true knowledge became either illusory 
or at very best, tentative. Against this, the Orthodox Christian doctrine asserts that man was created in the image of God, which means not only that he was created in knowledge, righteousness, holiness and dominion, but more broadly, that no aspect of man's life and experience exists apart from the mediation of that image. Man, though fallen, is still inescapably tied in all his experience to the reality and the knowledge of his origin. Man was called to exercise his knowledge and dominion over the created universe as vicegerent under God and to his glory. And according to Proverbs 1.7, quote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning, or chief part, of knowledge, end quote. In other words, knowledge is no mere collection of data. It is data seen in relationship to God as the sovereign and almighty one. Knowledge comes from God. It is the reverential subordination of all knowing to the creator. Man cannot identify himself in terms of himself, nor ultimately can he sustain any knowledge in terms of himself. Autonomous man must know everything or he knows nothing if he is to be consistent to his principle. This ideal of exhaustive knowledge claims far more than the biblical revelation, which definitely does not assert itself to be exhaustive. The biblical revelation, however, definitely undergirds all reality. As Van Til has observed, quote, The best, the only, the absolutely certain proof of the truth of Christianity is that, unless its truth be presupposed, there is no proof of anything. Christianity is proved as being the very foundation of the idea of proof itself. End quote. Knowledge, separated from this basic premise, tends to disintegrate and to be prostituted. More than that, the concept of the man of knowledge, the scholar, also disintegrates. The Reformation began as a movement of Christian scholarship, and for some time the centrality of the scholar persisted. Scholarship, which, under Luther, gained so exalted a place in the German nation, disappeared in its integrity and respect when true Lutheran faith waned also. The high calling of Christian priesthood was involved in scholarship, but the priesthood waned as the faith behind it waned. The rise of pietism within the church made experience, as in Romanticism, central, and scholarship came to be despised. Scholars have often been used and honoured by various cultures, but in an unhappy sense, in that, however much they may be respected and followed, they are not regarded as normal or true men. In one sense, Oriental culture is a significant exception to this. In another, the Oriental scholar, having adopted a radical relativism and abandoned the concept of truth, was merely a learned source of social cement and a learned obstacle to true scholarship. In other cultures, however, the scholar has, in varying degrees, had something of the character of the Eskimo shaman, whose calling requires a developed, controlled and accepted schizophrenia in the clinical sense. With the Eskimos, we have a clinically mature case of schizophrenia socially required of the shaman. Other cultures have analogous requirements of medicine men, priests, etc. While there are marked differences, and the analogy cannot be forced too far, modern culture 
does have similarly schizophrenic conceptions and explanations of the man of knowledge, an age concerned with its own consumption and play is bound to think of the pursuit of knowledge as divisive to the human soul and as something not quite normal. Thus, the scientist appears both as an immaculate, pure and selfless nun in a holy quest and a mad monster seeking to destroy the world. The artist is coarse, sensual and crude, and yet too much above earthly matters to be concerned with business details. The professor is an absent-minded bumbler, and yet, at the same time, a dangerous man who is trying to undermine society. Scholarship and learning are not the life of normal man, and they are assumed to exact a schizophrenic penalty of all devotees. And yet, the biblical concept of man's vocation and prophetic role requires us to believe that the true scholar is the normal man, and any other attitude is sub-Christian. Modern man is eccentric, and in the literal meaning of that word, off-centre. Apart from true faith, his life is off-centre, his culture, at its very best, and leavened extensively by Christian presuppositions, is still guilty of eccentricity. He forces eccentricity on every aspect of his society, and on his modern shaman, the scientist. The good life, play and, quote, love the elixir, end quote, he reserves unto himself with the unhappy infantilism of senility. Against all this, the Christian scholar must protest. Scholarship is a prophetic, priestly and kingly function, a central part of man's creation mandate. The godly scholar is the true man and the school an essential part of the kingdom of God. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.